from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life, our conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, family, community, our society, and then, of course, your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm so glad you're joining us. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the leadership program here at Wharton. I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership, and you can learn all about what we do at totalleadership.org, how we help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. Well, uh, this show, as you know, uh, if, you're, uh, if you've listened before, new episodes of it premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern time here on Sirius XM channel 132. And then throughout the week at different times, you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me at Stu Friedman. And then um, a little while down the road, you can find a podcast version of this show at workandlifepodcast.com. I'm very excited about uh, our conversation today with uh, a scholar and uh, practitioner, a man of the world, really, who has uh, produced a serious and important and incredibly readable book. It's called The Raging 2020s. You know, it's a time of great uncertainty in our world as we continue to deal with the pandemic, with political divisiveness and the rage underlying it, economic, economic inequality, the threats of climate change and more. What our guest today has done is uh, in, the, in his book is uh, offered us a path for first understanding how we got here. Uh, which he's which he's done in a way that I've not seen before, bringing together so many important threads of of history, economics, uh, sociology, and political science, uh, with ideas that uh, he he claims are um, you know an, an optimistic vision of of where we can go, and I, I want to believe him, and that's what we're going to be talking about: how we can repair the broken social contract between people business and government. Alec Ross is a leading expert on innovation. Uh, he's a former senior advisor in the Obama administration. His book is called The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future. Alec, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you for having me, Stu. I'm excited for our conversation. It's, it's great to have you here. Let me uh, just offer listeners a bit of background about you. Uh, Alec is currently a distinguished visiting professor at the University of Bologna Business School, and a board partner at Amplo, a global venture capital firm. During the Obama administration, Alex served as senior advisor for innovation to the Secretary of State to help modernize the practice of diplomacy and advance America's foreign policy interests. He also served as the convener for the Technology and Media Policy Committee on Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign and on the Obama-Biden presidential transition team. He's also the author of the bestseller, The Industries of the Future. Alec, you began as a teacher in Baltimore, uh, if I have that correct, uh, in teaching sixth grade, and I'd like to start there. Um, what did you discover as a sixth grade teacher in Baltimore that informs what you have composed in this brilliant book, The Raging 2020s? Well, thanks for that, Stu. I think I, I discovered that talent is universally distributed, but opportunity is not. Mm -hmm. I, ta I taught in a really poor community in West Baltimore, really, really poor, very, very violent. And the young people that I thought that I taught were brilliant. You know, I just come out of my fancy college education, mm -hmm. working, you know, living and, and sharing classrooms with incredibly smart young folks. And I saw a lot of talent in West Baltimore, but by the time they got to be age 12, 13, 14, 15, the world had sort of crushed them up into little bits. Season and four of The Wire. That's, you know, I, I have a hard time watching The Wire because it's so realistic. It was like going to, it was like going to work. Even the accent in The Wire is a, 
is a Baltimore accent. So yeah, that's oh, I didn't it's a brilliant show. And season four, of course, is the one you know in each season of the five seasons. There's a different institution that is explored and uh, exposed. And season four is, is about the education system. And it is a killer and a must watch. Um, footnote, my brother is Paul Ben Victor, the actor who is Vondas Vondopoulos in The Wire. Uh, so let's not digress on that too far. But back to what you discovered uh, in the schoolrooms and streets of Baltimore when you were uh, teaching there about the distribution of talent. So what, how does that inform what, what you've brought to us in the raging 2020s? So it makes me optimistic in so far as I believe that there's nothing about the DNA of people in poor communities. And I grew, I grew up in the coal-filled hills of West Virginia, you know, in sort of amidst rural poverty, then taught in urban poverty. And Look, there's nothing inherent. There might be, I don't know, a little bit more in the DNA of folks going to Ivy League schools that that predispose them to success more so than those who are languishing in poor urban and rural communities. But ultimately, it made me optimistic that, you know, the God-given talent is there. But what I also saw was it's near impossible. You have to either be Superman or Wonder Woman to get out of those communities in one piece. I mean, I had 12 students murdered uh, the, in 10 years after I, after I came out of teaching. I mean, it, it was an absolute shooting gallery in that community. And so it, it made me see what the challenges were systemically, but on a human level, it made me a little bit more optimistic. You hold that hope um, in, in your analysis here. Um, yet it, you know, one can't help but feel a deep anxiety um, in, you know, taking the time to uh, walk along with you in your uh, uh, really well composed, I mean, it's riveting, uh, story of, of how we got to where we are, um, in, in which you describe in the introduction, you know, the, the, uh, the infrastructure, let's call it, of modern life and and what it means for us it's kind of a tour of the uh the autonomic nervous system of our bodies right you you don't you don't ever think about uh how your blood is flowing but you know if, if it were to stop flowing you would you would think about it real fast um so tell us uh in in if you could encapsulate what what you lay out in that uh, fascinating introduction that um, that kind of sets the stage for the story that you tell. Sure. So I, I walk through a day, a day in the life of my family from the time that I wake up in the morning and, and brew my first cup of coffee, wife wrangling the kids into her SUV to, to drive them to school. And then for her to drive herself off to the school where she's, where she's a teacher in Baltimore's public schools through my getting on an airplane and taking a, a, a typical business trip like anybody might take in times of non-COVID. Mm. It seems really incredibly boring on the surface. But what I did is I unpacked all of these little actions, all of these little things that we're blind to, but which actually reveal the state of our social contract. So take that cup of coffee or even just the water. Uh, the way that the the water reaches my faucet is because of a of a, a public water system built in Baltimore, Maryland, 120 years ago. But now it, like much of America's infrastructure, is crumbling. I think about the coffee that goes into the coffee maker. Uh, what was once a luxury is now something that I can make for about 15 cents a cup because of because of free trade agreements with Central American nations. Uh, because of free trade and globalization. But those same trade agreements and, and that same globalization that, it, that allows me to have a luxury good at an affordable price and which helps uh, the people who grew the coffee in Central America and my local coffee roaster has also created imbalances for the American working class. And then that plane that I get onto, you know, I explain the role of of government helping get us on that plane. Everything from the CIA developed technology that the TSA uses to scan my boarding pass to the air traffic controlled skies from government employees 
but point out that here too, there's a pretty good demonstration of how our social contract uh, is broken. F America's five biggest airlines just got $49 billion worth of bailouts, even though they had $46 billion worth of free cash flow in the, in the decade preceding. They used it all for stock buybacks. And so it's, it's, there's that this- That did not benefit the, the workers, the passengers, the pilots and the crew, but rather the um, owners. That's exactly right. Now we're in this sort of Mad Max-like state of shareholder capitalism right now, where for every dollar- Okay, could you just describe what Mad Max-like means for those who have not been terrified by that uh, movie? <laughs> sure. What it means is basically that the owner of capital, uh, the shareholder, the big boss, is the near sole beneficiary mm. of- the profits the, of the goods or services produced. And, you know, it used to be the case for decades, you know this, Stu, during uh, America's period of greatest growth, that we were, we were exemplars of so-called stakeholder capitalism, meaning if you made a dollar, the idea is that that, do the, that dollar of profit would be equi equitably distributed uh, between shareholders, between employees, community institutions, and even the, the things like the the local community, uh, mm -hmm. our environment. Not to yeah. mention roads and buildings and water supplies, et cetera. That's exactly right. But then in the 80s and getting into the 1990s, the nature of our capitalism shifted. Capitalism isn't all one thing. And we went from having a dominantly stakeholder-based model of capitalism to shareholder-based capitalism. Stakeholder you know, implies, of course, these other interests in society, citizens, people uh, beyond owners of capital. Like our climate and environment, for example. Uh, and so shareholder capitalism, the thesis behind shareholder capitalism is if you take one cent, one penny out of that dollar of profit and do not transfer it transfer to the shareholder, you had better have a really good reason. And that reason has to mean future shareholder wealth. Uh, and so when I say Mad Max-like state of capitalism, what I'm talking about is a very, very small number of beneficiaries and a whole heck of a lot of people working very hard to produce the wealth for that very- So how the heck did we get to this sorry state in what is clearly- as you, you know, uh, described so vividly, a broken social contract. Answer that question, please, after I remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. My guest today is Alec Ross, a distinguished visiting professor at the University of Bologna Business School and author of The Raging 2020s. We're talking about that book. Um, it's, it's a long story. You've, you've distilled its essence um, could you give us just, you know, the, the very, you know, high level executive summary of how it is that we've gotten to this point of the broken social contract, and then we'll spend as much of the rest of our time as possible on what we individually and collectively can do to try to fix it. Yeah, we took the short version we took is we took the guardrails off of our capitalism. So after, after the United States won the Cold War, the idea was that capitalism won over communism and socialism. And instead of keeping the form of capitalism that won in place, what we did is we massively deregulated the economy. And that combined with globalization, which, oh, by the way, I think globalization has been an overwhelming good for the world. But one of the negatives of it is that corporations, which were no multinational corporations, which were no longer tethered to their home country as they were before, they globalized their capital base, stopped hiring people at home, stopped uh, paying taxes at home, because in the same way in which you can sell things abroad, so too can you base your, base your capital abroad. So we sort of hollowed out uh, a lot of the productive base of the American economy. What's been the result of that, Alec, for the American public and indeed for our ability to cooperate with other economies in the world to solve problems that are truly global in scope. So, so just, I'll, I'll throw out a little bit of math. So going, I'm 49 years old, going back to just when I was a sophomore in college, just 30 years ago, I, 
over those 30 over those 30 years the wealthiest 1% in the united states has grown 21 trillion trillion with a t 21 trillion dollars wealthier while the lower 50% has grown 900 billion dollars poorer and the middle class has stagnated and so the result of this really has been an acceleration of inequality that was previously unknown. Now to your, this, your second question of how does this help us relate to, uh, work with other states and societies, I think a part of what's happened in most recent years is this is all this inequality has produced rage. Uh, when a 17-year-old barista at Starbucks pays more in federal taxes uh, than Starbucks Corporation, it's going to radicalize her. And she goes to the far left. When the FedEx driver, a single FedEx driver, pays more in federal taxes than Federal, Ex federal Express Corporation, it radicalizes him. He goes to the far right. And, and what you see is this rage, you know, hence the title of the book, The Raging 2020s, which characterizes, increasingly characterizes our country, and it diminishes our standing abroad. I mean, other countries are paying very close attention to mm -hmm. this boiling pot that is the United States. As, as in Glasgow last week at COP26. No, that's exactly right. And, and the standing that we had decades ago, the ability to convene the world uh, and uh, arrive at some common solutions, it's just not that way anymore. I mean, it's fascinating. I worked for, for President Obama for six years and I remember there was the, you know, the Ebola crisis and looking at how the United States really organized the entire world and the global health system to keep the Ebola crisis contained and juxtapose that with how we responded to and what our global standing was during COVID. Mm -hmm. It's reasonable to say that, that this instability, this rage actually produce, helps produce a pretty big body count. So what's... <sighs> What's the um, now? Re remember, folks, Alec has an optimistic view of the future. So we're going to get to that somehow. And, and what you as a citizen, as a, as a worker, as a boss, whomever uh, you, you are in, in, in our world uh, can can do to try to help uh, repair this broken world, because there are things that each of us can do individually and collectively. We're going to get there. Um, but first. What's the role of corporations? We, we talked about ownership of capital as uh, you know, unfettered and you know, wreaking all kinds of havoc and, and creating all kinds of inequality and rage resulting from that. What, what is the role of the corporation today vis-a-vis -vis government in, in providing the kinds of um, social protections and encouragements for cooperative uh, care. Well, first, I would say when government fails, when government doesn't act, uh, it leaves us to corporations to govern us. And in many respects, I think we're more governed by companies than we are by governments. When you don't raise... You mean, the, you mean Mark Zuckerberg is more important than uh, Joe Biden? I don't think he's more important than Joe Biden, but I think he's more important than probably 95 of the 100 United States senators. And I think that Mark Zuckerberg, I think that Jeff Bezos, I think that Tim Cook, I think that I think that the CEOs of America's biggest and most powerful companies are more important and more powerful than 90 percent of the heads of state around the world. They mm -hmm. aren't more powerful or more important than Xi Jinping or Joe Biden, but they're more powerful and important than any prime minister. I would any European prime minister, I would argue. Now, why is that? And, and perhaps we can start to now segue into what, what's, what's, what's wrong with that model and, and how we can adjust it. But first, why? So the, the reason why is because when government doesn't act, it leaves a huge gap open. So when you don't raise the federal minimum wage for 13 years, it means the federal government doesn't actually set the minimum wage anymore. It means that Walmart and Amazon do. And so you're giving the power to the Walmarts and the Amazon to determine what the real minimum wage is in a country. When you don't do climate legislation, I mean, you know, Stu, you know, we have a complete inability to 
be a signatory to any significant global treaty. We don't really do climate legislation in this country anymore. When you leave it to the private sector, it then says, all right, well, what Walmart decides to do with its supply chain is actually more consequential than what the Environmental Protection Agency does. Uh, when, and so, it, you know, I don't say this is, you know, I'm not a fists clenched, every billionaire is a policy failure, let's burn down the private sector person. I don't actually believe that. Uh, but what I do believe is that they have powers that they ought not have. And, and in many cases, they don't want, uh, you know, in the raging 2020s, I actually tell the story of how Doug McMillan the CEO of Walmart went to Congress testifying that they should raise the minimum wage. Mm -hmm. And when one of the questions to him was, well, why do you need us to raise the minimum wage? Why don't you just pay your workers more? He goes, because I have competition. And if I, I raise my wages, then it puts me at a disadvantage to all of my competition. Mm -hmm. And so you oh, got to do that way, for me, senators. And oh, by the way, my share price goes down. Mm -hmm. And so there's this weird and the private sector government and citizens ought to work in a sort of equilibrium. There's a balance of power. There are shared responsibilities. There's democratic consent. And what we've lost a little bit is that equilibrium uh, when government doesn't govern. So the, the first three chapters of your book uh, look first at you know the, this distinction between shareholder and stakeholder capitalism. And then um, at what you've just been describing, uh, how governments have, have, have been weakened, how our government has been weakened as a, uh, a source of wise policy and allocation of resources, and then what that means for the workers. So um, as we, as we uh, get up to, uh, we, we're going to have to take a break in, in just a minute or so, um, what's the essence of, of, of the story that you, you tell in the, in the opening half of uh, the raging 2020s with respect to those three uh, institutional forces? So what we've seen is we've grown, government grow weaker and its ability to get the job done reduced. What we've seen is we've seen the standing of workers uh, and the power of workers go down, especially as like the labor movement in the United States. You know, I'm, I'm a former teachers union member. I worked on a beer truck shoulder to shoulder with the, with the, with the Teamsters you know, this labor in the United States has never been weaker. And frankly, it deserves to be weak uh, because of its leadership over the last several decades. Mm -hmm. And alongside this, we've seen corporations grow stronger. And frankly, corporations, not just their own ability to, to execute against their goals grow stronger, but they increasingly are driving what takes place inside government. So, what do you say to those critics who come at you from the right and say this is a uh, socialist you know, manifesto that is going to destroy the very fabric of American liberty? I say it's a capitalist manifesto. Uh, you know, capitalism isn't all one thing. And in fact, the kind of capitalism that I'm calling for in many respects reflects the kind of capitalism that characterized America after World War II and which led to decades of economic growth and the growth of a massive middle class. Uh, I think it, that needs to be modernized. It needs to include people from, you know, all communities. And obviously the nature of the economy is different today than it was then. But what I'm actually not calling for is socialism. I'm just calling for a better capitalism. Could you elaborate on that distinction? Sure. So in capitalism, every, you know, we all have to pay taxes. In a broken capitalism, the 17-year-old barista at Starbucks pays more in taxes than Starbucks Corporation. A single FedEx driver pays more in taxes than yeah. Federal Express. And that isn't really capitalism. Capitalism is also defined by competition. And what we have is an economy right now defined by less and less competition. Mergers and acquisitions, consolidation of the market means that we now have an economy that in many respects is more, that is more monopolistic or more oligarchical than characterized by the sort of great competition of true capitalism. So if anything, I want a purer form of capitalism to come through, one that is less oligarchical and monarchical. What, what do you mean by less oligarchical and monarchical? More competition. I, I think that a, a, a truly functional capitalist economy 
is one where there's a where there is more competition. But we've seen so much consolidation. Whether you consolidation are of at nearly every industry, whether it is your cable company, whether it's your phone company, whether it's you know where you're going to buy where you're going to be buy laundry detergent from. We have less choice today than we had decades ago, and that's it's very strange to, to in many respects have less consumer choices than we did decades prior. It is strange uh, because you'd think there would have been a greater proliferation of variety and, uh, you know, the different modes of uh, access to the variety of products and services that our beautiful world creates. Um, w- when we come back from our break, we'll explore a bit more about how we got to where we are, but uh, we'll get straight away into the, uh, the, the paths forward that we might take for each one of us to try to heal this broken world in ways that are within our scope. So stay with us. We'll be right back, continuing the conversation with Alec Ross about his book, The Raging 2020s. I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. So glad you're here. I am Stu Friedman, the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program. And I'm also founder of Total Leadership, which is a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping individuals and organizations find ways to create harmony among the different parts of life. I'm speaking today with Alec Ross, who's on a similar kind of mission um, on a much bigger scale. Um, He is the author of the thought-provoking must-read for anyone trying to understand where we are and how to to try to steer us to a better course uh, for our world. It's the raging 2020s, companies, countries, people, and the fight for our future. Alec is a distinguished visiting professor at the University of Bologna Business School, Bocconi, correct? Uh, no? Bocconi is actually in Milan. Ah, the, I just wanted be, to say Bocconi. No, è una bella parola. It's a beautiful word. <laughs> Thank you. And please forgive my error. Um, he's also a board partner at Amplo, which maybe we'll get to talk about, venture capital firm, um, served on the Obama administration, in the Obama administration as an advisor to the Secretary of State. Um. <clears throat> All right. So where do we go from here, Alec? What are you telling your kids? How are you thinking about the future? I've got my grandkids I'm thinking about, but also the, all the children of the world. We have fucked it up royally, I, w- I want to say, my generation. Um, and uh, it kind of keeps me up at night worrying about all the damage that's been done during my lifetime. What can we do now? Where do we well, begin to try to change the course uh, to, to try to heal the, the broken social contract that clearly is tearing us apart? Well, whether for all the damage we've done, Stu, whether the future looks more like Mad Max or more like Star Trek is still up to us. I still believe, believe we have agency in all of this. But there are a lot of things we need to do. Now, one of the things that I will point, I'll point to, I'll give an example of something that governments can do, what corporations can do, and what people can do. Okay. First, uh, corp- for first government, uh, you know, as we were talking earlier, there is a massive amount of injustice in our tax system. I mean, I remember I was once on the $200 million yacht of one of America's richest people. And look, I worked at the State Department. I'm pretty good at identifying flags. And the flag that was flying on his yacht was one I didn't recognize. I'm, what? I'm like, what? What flag is that? And he gave me sort of a shit-eating grin and referenced some little podunk pile of rocks in the Caribbean. And he smiled and he goes, he goes, this boat is tax-free and actually earns me a profit. And for me, that was a little, that was representative when the billionaire with the $200 million yacht makes money uh, owning a $200 million yacht. And mm-hmm. so at the, at, the, at the governmental level, we do, need, uh, we do need tax reform. And I'm not talking about increasing taxes, Stu. I think all of us could pay less in taxes if what we did is we closed tax havens, if we shut down the tax havens, 
And if we got behind some of what's happening right now, which is a, a global minimum tax, the idea that corporations in the largest economies have to pay a minimum of, of a 15, a 15% tax on their profits. Mm. So the, that's what I think at the governmental level. That seems that's fair. It is fair. It's less, it's a lot lower than the corporate tax rate in the United States right now. It affects exactly zero American companies who are working in the United States and paying tax rights here. Why can't we, why can't we get that done? And this gets to my skepticism about your, you know, optimism. And that is, you know, the entrenched uh, interests that are increasingly powerful in controlling tax policy. Is, is this a realistic prospect, Alec? I think it is. So there are 196 countries on planet Earth and 135 of them. And frankly, the ones that really matter on this question just signed an agreement to try to put this global minimum tax in place. So this is this sort of race to the bottom. You know, these little podunk islands uh, where countries can locate themselves with nothing more than a P.O. box and get away companies, you mean? Yes, that we get away with not with not paying taxes. This affects the countries, and so I do think that there is positive momentum taking us to a global minimum tax. Okay, so global tax reform, maybe a global society like in the Expanse. Fans, Expanse <laughs> final season is coming, and it's it's a vision of the future that has one you know. No nations, just one one Earth government. Interesting concept. Is that what you're advocating? Absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm not advocating for that. Um, boy, I think we'd see a huge wave of revolutions if that happened. What I do believe, though, is that in a world where companies are able to do business globally, there ought to be a tax regime that works globally as well. And you think that's possible? I do think it's possible. And so what, what can a listener do to find out more about that other than reading your book and to do something uh, to try to influence our move in that direction if they were so inclined? So this is a case where members of Congress are going to have to support this. Okay. But it's really obscure. But if mm. members of Congress hear, hey, we want a global minimum tax so that billionaires are not paying less in taxes than I am. Or that, you know, the local coffee shop is not paying more in taxes than Starbucks. If the local member of Congress hears that from her constituents, then that's all for the good. All right. So that's 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 one important uh, idea in terms of what what we can do to try to shape governments uh, in, a, in a more fair, uh, just and smarter direction. Uh, what's what's sort of your top idea with respect to. Um, economic entities, private sector, and then then let's spend the rest of our time talking about what uh, each of us can do as individual citizens. Sure. So for corporations, I'll give just a very concrete example. I mean, I'm a partner in a venture capital fund with over a billion dollars in assets. So this is not a, we are not a bunch of kumbaya little socialists. I mean, there are a lot of zeros in our checkbook and we deploy a lot of capital. Uh, And we have, I think, 27 companies that we've invested in. And what we do using the power of our checkbook and, you know, working with the CEOs of these companies is make sure that as these companies grow, as they produce wealth, first of all, that they've all got uh, climate and sustainability plans so that they are offsetting whatever, whatever their carbon footprint is. Mm -hmm. And then two, it's, Instead of just us investors getting rich, and instead of just you, the founder CEO, getting rich, if this startup takes off, let's put an employer ownership program in place so that everybody benefits. Not, and not just your hotshot engineers, but the person answering the phones in the front of the office, mm-hmm. literally everybody. Mm-hmm. I can be critical of Silicon Valley, but one positive lesson I take from Silicon Valley is employee ownership. You know, we focus on the Mark Zuckerberg gazillionaire billionaires, but they've also produced tens of thousands mm-hmm. of good old fashioned millionaires. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a big believer in employee ownership. And at the institutional level, at the company level, 
giving employees a stake in the company and a stake in the profit is something you have the power to do. So an economic stake, but also a voice through, um, uh, you know, organized action uh, of workers. Is that another part of what you look at in terms of your investment strategy? It is. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. I sit on the board of a big publicly traded Swiss company. And the Swiss model for governance means that you basically have every company has a union. But the difference between the how we see unions in the United States and how they work in Central and Northern Europe, for example, is in the United States, in the Mediterranean, in the UK, it's an inherently adversarial relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all combat. Whereas it was interesting and just living through this, Stu, when the pandemic hit, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, on this board that I sit on uh, for the Swiss company, you know, you get the spreadsheet that the MBAs produce that say, hey, we expect we're going to you know, lose this much business. So we should fire this number of people. Uh, but we have a process in place where we engage our internal union. It's called the Workers Council. Mm-hmm. We present the numbers to them. They say, hey, can you give us a day or two to come back to you with some of our ideas? And we said, sure. And what they did is they came back to us and they said, guess what? Instead of firing 300 people, if everybody inside the entire company takes a one and a half percent pay cut for six months, including, oh, by the way, you executives, we don't have to fire anybody. And we, being the work council for the company, will line Mm -hmm. up all the employee support. That's a great example. We did it and it worked beautifully. Um. Let's let's get to what individual citizens can do, and I know you have some important ideas about that. Uh, where where can a listener begin to uh, uh, you know aside from being aware of what governments are doing, what their representatives are doing, and to speak out about global tax reform, for example? Uh, what else uh, can can people do to try to advance the cause of a of a of a, of a, a better path through these raging twenties? So let me point to two things. First of all, uh, we have to get better educated on the issues. Uh, I'm gonna, whether you are tilt to the right and get your news from Fox News, whether you tilt to the left and get your news from MSNBC, the news such as we get it on c- cable TV right now gives us a sort of cartoon version of what's actually happening economically and socially in this country. So I do think there is virtue and value in smartening up on some of the some of the systemic issues, uh, whether it's related to, to labor, whether it's re- related to economics, whatever it is. And then the second thing uh, that individual you can do at the individual level is we've got to sort of detribalize a little bit politically. There are a couple of words that are actually banned in this book. I don't know if you noticed, Stu. But hang, on. Words- hang on, hang yeah. on. Uh, I was just going to ask you to pause for a moment there. Can't wait to get to uh, where you're going with this, but I want to remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio. And yes, we're talking about life, folks, and uh, in, in, in terms of social institutions and, and how they affect our lives and uh, today and, and where we are going as a society and what we can do about it on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, I'm talking to Alec Ross, author of The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future. So please uh, proceed. What about those banned words? Trump, Obama, Clinton, Biden. You won't find any of those words Mm. in in the pages of The Raging 2020s. Because? Because smart people become stupid. As soon as we start talking, as soon as we start talking in terms of the, in terms of the people and the players, as opposed to about the policies and ideas, it's like Eleanor Roosevelt said, she had it absolutely right. She said, great minds discuss ideas, normal minds discuss events, uh, poor minds discuss people. And I feel mm-hmm. like, and I'm no different, Stu. I mean, if you, if certain of those names produce a trigger, an emotional mm-hmm. response from me, Mm-hmm. that then dumbs me down. It, it, and I think that in order for us to get solutions on any of these things, we have to be able to work across communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, if in the United States Senate, if there were a resolution that said, be it resolved, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. No way. It'd be we're a not doing that. 
we're not, you know, we disagree. We'd figure out a way to disagree that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And, you know, part of how I discovered this or part of how I processed this was when I would go home to West Virginia, uh, where my where I grew up, where my parents live, go to a bar, get a couple beers in your belly and you talk to the guy sitting on the bar stool beside you. Don't you know, I'm not saying I don't say I worked for Barack Obama for all these years. I don't say anything that identifies my politics, but we just start talking and you recognize that the complexity of the ideas and the thinking. Uh, is far greater than, you know, red hat or blue hat, Democrat yeah. or Republican. But as soon as if, you know, especially after I've got a couple beers in my belly, if I invoke any of those names, Mm-mm. then suddenly our conversation has gone from being a good conversation to the rage, to the rage. Yeah. So 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 reaching to a higher level of conversation is something that we can try to do ourselves, teach our kids to do, encourage their educators to help them learn how to do. Um, what else, uh, particularly about the choices we make in our, in our uh, everyday, um, where, can, where can people make a difference? Well, I think one place where they can, where they can make a difference every day is with their consumer choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I try to buy things from companies, from institutions that, you know, maybe it costs me a little bit more. It costs me, you know, another 10, 25 cents per cup of coffee or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, If I buy a book from a local bookstore instead of Amazon, it might cost me four or $5 more. But part of what I, what I choose to do, and I recognize I'm able to do this because of, you know, relative economic privilege at this point, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, I try to be mindful about the choices I make about how, who I buy things from, how I spend my money, trying to support small and medium sized businesses, trying to not buy from companies that I think that are irresponsible or exploit their workers. And so I think those, these are little things that we do unconsciously every day. We buy stuff and I try to be a little bit more conscious of who I'm buying from. But it's so inconvenient, Alec. It can be inconvenient, but you know what, you know, going, even the local bookstore right now, you can order something online and the credit card auto fills in on the local, on the local bookstore credit card form, just like it does everywhere else. But no, it's it, mm-hmm. laziness. Laziness, honestly, has a consequence here. And for everything that we surrender to algorithms, every, you know, the choices that we surrender to platform, to the big platforms that direct us through our day, I'm not convinced that we are any happier, healthier or wealthier because of it. Mm. Well, do you have any uh, specific recommendations about how to become a better informed consumer so that those choices, which do require some effort and attention, uh, are indeed uh, not just more conscious, but also consciously uh, directed to you know, the allocation of resources to the kinds of institutions and economic entities that, uh, that you want to support? How do you find out? Like, you know, I, I got to be honest, like this is we're all busy, right? And we're we've all got a thousand points of information coming into us during right. the day. So I do some just really simple little things. So, for example, if I search for something online, uh, I don't click on the Google ad that takes me to the company's product. I collect I connect I click directly on, I have to scroll down a little bit. You do have to scroll down the screen a little bit, Alec. That takes time. You didn't have to used to, but it's like, if you take that extra one half of one second, then you don't pay the Google tax and the small business doesn't have to pay the Google tax. Uh, Uh, It's little things like that. And also we know whether we're buying from a small business mm -hmm. or from a large multinational. So like the pharmacy, like we go to one of these old fashioned local pharmacies that almost don't exist anymore mm-hmm. uh, instead of going to Walgreens, Rite Aid or CVS. Now, sometimes we have to go to Walgreens 
a Rite Aid or CVS, like when we get our vaccines, for example, because the little family yep. owned vac- the little family owned pharmacy doesn't give you your COVID vaccines. No, but but there are these little things, and it's not about trying to be a hero. It's not about being righteous. It's just about these little unconscious decisions we make becoming a little bit more conscious. One of the things that you have talked about in some of your writing is uh, is is trying to speak up inside of your organization if you're an employee about uh, the distribution of profits um, in 2021 what's the, what's the state of you know employee voice in those kinds of you know hard core economic decisions where the entrenched power is is you know is not uh, going to support your having that kind of voice or leverage? It largely doesn't exist inside the United States. Mm. And what's weird is it does in many, many other countries. I think we need labor. I think we need labor union startups in the same way in which we have technology startups. Mm. Do we have any? We have a couple little ones, uh, but this is part of what I'm calling for in, in the raging 2020s. If you think about it, our big old unions, the AFL-CIO, I mean, they've sort of become like IBM. You know, they are these mm-hmm. massive institutions that, you know, GE is splitting into three companies now because it's just sort of a massive lumbering engine that isn't dynamic. Those are America's unions. And because America's unions are just not effective anymore, they need, I hate using this word, but they need some disruption. We need startups. We need those 23-year-olds who actually believe in labor rights and workers' movements, but in the context of an economy in the 2020s, to say, you know what, I'm going to start a union. Like that is something that I think uh, that is something I think our economy clearly needs. Think about the gig economy, for example. Like, mm-hmm. how do you how do you unionize uh, something that's distributed over an app, like Uber drivers? There's no factory floor where all the Uber drivers get together, mm-hmm. uh, and that's why the traditional unions, for example, can't really organize them. These are you know, they mm-hmm. they they never go to work and check in with the boss. The boss is an app. And so we need labor movements that basically respond to the appification Hmm. of more and more of our labor. So why would Uber or Lyft want to support that? They wouldn't. Hmm. There's no interest that that those um, algorithm producers and and managers have in in a stronger collective uh, uh, power and voice of, of their... Uh, their drivers or whatever service it is that that's being provided. That's right. Look, the, a lot of the, zero sum, no, 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 no potential for uh, shared interest there. You know, it's interesting. The 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 new CEO of Uber, who took over for the mm-hmm. brotastic uh, predecessor founder of Uber. Yeah, that's a good word that you use in the book. I said brotastic. Yeah, I, I he, get he it. Okay, the brotastic boy billionaire. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's he's not a bad person and he's put some ideas forward. But at the end of the day, some of these if the stock price is going to really jump, um, they need then they need the lowest the lowest unit of labor cost possible. Mm -hmm. And so the question then becomes, are there things that we can do that are good for the economy more broadly, but may not be that great for, say, the Uber share price. Hmm. Well, you know, we have to wrap up here, Alec. I'm, I'm curious, like that conversation on the West Virginia bar stool, how does that end up in, in, in the story that you'd like to see told over these next, uh, you know, years uh, and decade to come? What I really hope is that the dude on the bar stool beside me um, sort of puts, puts the gun down, literally and proverbial, that partisan gun and opens up his mind a little bit uh, to some to some new ideas. You know, right now I do feel like there is a dummying down of political dialogue that makes it almost impossible to do some of these complex things like unionizing the Uber workforce or global minimum tax, 
you know, these kinds of things are going to require Democrats and Republicans working together. But the political environment, whether it's whether it is on that bar stool in West Virginia or whether it's in West Baltimore on the other end of the political spectrum, just doesn't lend itself right now to cooperating. So, so now we now we come full circle. You're optimistic, Alec, and I'd like to know why. Because, first of all, only optimists change the future. I do. <laughs> look, I, okay. I think that only optimists change. I am not ready to curl into the fetal position and, de- and declare defeat. And I, I am actually more optimistic about this young generation mm-hmm. who I do think have some sensibilities and sensitivities that are a little bit different than our generation's. Um, I'm Gen X. You're, we'll call it Gen X plus, right? The boomer, okay. solid boomer. I'm 69, you're, you're, dude. Uh, yeah. So you're a boomer. I'm Gen X. We are the ones who sort of brought the world to its current state. And I'm, I'm choosing to be optimistic about what this, these younger generation does once they begin to really accumulate a little bit of power. We have no choice. We must have that kind of hopeful optimism. It's, it's the only way to proceed and get up in the morning. Alec, thank you so much uh, for being my guest today. How can listeners find out more about the book and uh, the other great work you're doing? They can go to alecross.com, A-L-E-C-R-O-S-S.com. You can find me on social media at, at Alec J. Ross. And the Raging 2020s, you can find it at your local bookstore. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it anywhere. All right. Alec, thank you uh, for this great work uh, and for joining me to talk about it today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Stu. All right. And thank you, folks, for joining us. I hope you have been provoked in this conversation and will take action. I'll have some thoughts about um, how you can do that. Uh, at the podcast site in a couple of weeks when this uh, when this conversation is posted there. But for now, get the book, read it, <clears throat> take action. You can do it. And don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern to hear uh, our next iteration of work and life. You have questions about something you heard on the show today. You can just email me Friedman at Wharton.upenn.edu or our station at business radio at SiriusXM.com. And uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Stu Friedman. I'm also at Stu Friedman on Twitter. All right. That's it for today. Patty Hall, thanks for making it all happen. Chris Tukes for engineering. I am Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.